this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track, but there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. Have you ever heard of a business that buys a product and then resells it on Amazon to make a profit? I'm kind of a neophyte when it comes to this stuff, but I was really educated, and you're going to hear from Sophie Howard in a moment about this entire business model of sourcing products and then reselling them on Amazon. Sophie's built up a bit of a reputation for doing this. She's now built and sold two companies selling products that she sourced from elsewhere and purchased and then ultimately sold on Amazon. She's actually sold the entire company. And she shares some of the lessons learned along the way in this interview. A couple of cool things that I took away from the interviews. Number one, how to source a product to sell on Amazon, if that's something you're interested in. we talk a little, bit, a little bit about the difference between selling a commodity and selling what she calls a private label product. Uh, the one contract adjustment you have to make if you ultimately want to sell your business that sells on Amazon. Um, one of the questions she got during due diligence, which is was a bit of a stumper for her, was, well, what about the customer data? How am I supposed to buy a company that I don't even own the customer data because Amazon owns the customer data. So you'll hear how Sophie thinks about that question as well as how she answered it to her potential and ultimately acquirers. Uh, You'll hear the difference between an asset and a share sale. One simple thing you can do to make it much easier to get through the due diligence process, in particular if you're selling an Amazon business, and then one piece of advice Sophie has for all sellers. Here to give you all of her pearls of wisdom is Sophie Howard. Sophie Howard, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. Great to be on the show. I've been uh, really enjoying your books over the last few years and the podcast, and great to be here. So thank you. Wow, that's, that's kind of you. They make it all the way down to Queenstown, New Zealand, do they? <laughs> yeah, on good old Kindle. I love Amazon, so even my books come through Amazon, <laughs> <Yeah>. actually. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and you bring up Amazon because, of course, your businesses are all based on selling stuff on Amazon. Um. Tell us about these because you've been through a few exits of companies you've started, sold stuff on Amazon, and then the businesses have actually been acquired. And so, I mean, for 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 lay people like me, I mean, when I think of Amazon, I mean, correct me, I, I know this is stupid, but I still think of books. I think of Jeff Bezos, and I think of now I can get more than books on Amazon. I can get you know cat litter on Amazon, and I can get Nike shoes on Amazon. So, expand my horizons here. What else can I get on Amazon? What what businesses did you start on Amazon? Uh, so Amazon really is positioning itself to be the everything store. They've got the the warehousing and logistics stitched up. They've got a lot of data and they just want to have this platform where everyone can buy everything and all around the world as well. So um, all the customers browsing on Amazon, they're looking for day-to-day household items, you know, some of the things that would apply for 
um, you know, online shopping, something like a pair of jeans or a suit isn't going to be great. But a lot of that day to day household stuff uh, can just sell in such incredible volumes because there's so many people shopping every single day and they trust Amazon. So the first products I started selling were from Nepal and handmade in Kathmandu by Nepalese people working in a charity. And they weren't a very obvious product to sell because there's a few software tools out there that help you have a look at the numbers of what's in demand, what's already selling, um, what keywords people are searching for. It's a really big search engine. So you've got to kind of respond to search demand. It's not like a, a an Amazon, Amazon's not the platform to teach people about a new product or launch something crazy and new. It's definitely to respond to what's already being searched for. So I chose something that wasn't very mainstream and wasn't being searched for nearly as much as what most other people were selling on Amazon. They were doing kind of kitchen things and barbecue tools and uh, baby kind of basics. Um, so I went out on a bit of a limb with this quite unusual product um, that kind of broke all the rules. It wasn't mass produced in China. It wasn't really cheap in plastic. It was um, uh, made, made by hand. And it sold really well. So even though there was a small amount of search traffic, I was getting nearly all those sales quietly at great profits for a year or so. And with those profits, I started playing around with other products. So that first one was made in Nepal. I then got some products from China, some from India. I ended up launching about 500 different types of products and then kind of got my eye in for what price points the sweet spot uh, what do Amazon customers actually buy rather than what do they search for? Sometimes they um, are looking for a gift, so they want the very nicest, best, most beautifully presented version, and they're not too sensitive on price. Other things, people just want a cheap commodity, and that's not a good end of town to be in. I wanted to be at that gift premium end and building sort of better margins. Much Got it. And less competition, and the suppliers can't do the same thing themselves if you've got a bit of you know nice packaging and a you know it's been put together in a in such a way that it's harder to copy. So this is this is where I'm sort of I'm uh, I'm getting educated now. I, I know that we can't say the name of the product mm -hmm. uh, because that's going to create all sorts of headaches for Amazon, as I understand it. So you're you're intentionally being vague about the products. So so for listeners of mine, um, know that I'd love to tell you what Sophie was selling on Amazon, but I can't. So I think what we what we can tell you is that it was a baby product and it was handmade in Nepal. Yeah. Is and that fair, Sophia? It would be a problem for Amazon. It's the guys that have bought the businesses off me. If it became public knowledge what the products were that I was selling, other people could go out, source those similar products and compete with the guys that have just Got bought it. the businesses. So it's a bit unfair on them. Plus, it's in my agreement with them that I won't say. So. Yeah. So that's yeah, no, I can't share, sorry. Under yeah, no, understandable. But I think listeners can get a sense that it wasn't, as you say, a, a commoditized product. It was, it was handmade. So why do they need you? Why can't... So on one hand, why can't the Nepalese uh, company that has these handmade baby products, why can't they just create an Amazon store and sell it directly? Why do they need you? It's a good question, John, because I wondered the same myself, and especially some of these huge Chinese suppliers, they're filling up container loads for their clients at you know whatever wholesale rate they've got agreed. Um, and they can see what they're selling for on Amazon. They can see the price on Amazon. They can see the images being used. They can see the listing and the way it's written. But Amazon's a big machine, and to run an Amazon account prop properly, you've got to do some of the basics right around how your account's set up, um, how you, you know, just managing inventory. You've got to be a pretty good generalist and just keep in stock. 
you know, have, you know, the basics running, but you also have to really study how the Amazon algorithm works. And there is in the more competitive areas, unless you're kind of an Amazon expert and know exactly what you're doing, you'll be buried on page 85. And I think something like 86% of all the sales made on Amazon are from that page one of search results. So somebody busy manufacturing in a small outfit on the other side of the world just doesn't have the knowledge of how to win on Amazon. And they just see their job as making stuff. They aren't interested in doing the whole end-to-end supply chain. They just want to sell to the next one in the chain and have a nice backlog of orders and keep busy doing what they specialize in. They probably I heard so- why we don't make it ourselves. I heard somewhere, I don't know if this is true, you'll probably know this. I heard somewhere that the the number two search engine in the world by search volume is not Bing from Microsoft. Of course, Google is the number one. But I heard Amazon is the number two search engine in the world. Is that true? That's right. And isn't that incredible? 55% of all product searches start on Amazon. Say that again, 55%? Yeah, 55%. Good Lord, that's incredible. And a lot of those will be people in a bricks and mortar store looking at something for sale. They'll have a look on Amazon to check the reviews, to check the price. And if they've got Amazon Prime, they'll get cheap, free shipping, you know, overnight, next couple of days. And they um, might get a much better price than in the store. So it's a horrible time to be in retail, I'd say, for those day-to-day products that are available on Amazon. So flip side question, similar question, but from the flip side, why does Amazon need you? Like if Amazon's got the algorithm and they can see that people are searching for handmade baby products from Nepal, (laughs) like why do they need Sophie Howard? Why don't they just go source them themselves? Uh, Good question. So Amazon does source some products themselves. So if you're um, looking at something like, I don't know, what's a really boring day-to-day thing, tea towels. Amazon will carry their own line of Amazon Basics tea towels. They'll have amazing purchasing power. They own shipping lines. You know, they've got their claws right through the whole chain of some of those basic, really high volume products. But Amazon wants to be the first trillion dollar company. They're on track to be that by the end of this year. And that means they need more products. So they bought Whole Foods Market for 13 billion to get more food products and to get the warehouses as well. But they only bought um, Whole Foods Market about a year or so ago, they've now got 17% of the grocery sales in the States already. Um, so they just need more products and more variety for more shoppers so that people have got no reason to look anywhere else but Amazon. And those harder to source, lower volume ones, especially where there's a bit of a point of difference or some product development or a basic commodities turned into a gift pack or there's a bundle of things put together. Amazon doesn't really want to be in that business. That's too um, manually, uh, just sort of too labor intensive for them to scale. So they've got managers and they've got ambitions to grow every category and third party sellers like me can now add to that catalog. So our listings go on the Amazon platform and now more than half the products sold on Amazon are sold by third party sellers. It's amazing. So... Tell me about the business model itself. This has nothing to... We're going to get to the sale of the company, and and I'm fascinated by that as well. But I'm also just equally fascinated about the business model. So in this case, do you warehouse the product or or are you really a classic go-between where you're really never taking taking ownership of the, the baby products that you're buying from Nepal? You're simply moving the order from one place to the next. Are you, are you taking ownership of the inventory? Yeah. So the flow um, goes like this. So you find your supplier, find your product, find your supplier, 
put down a deposit for that order, usually about a third. They manufacture the order, make the products. So my first product was 75 units of a $3 product. These don't need to be big initial orders. Then the supplier will ship them as you pay the balance. Um, they'll organize the shipping for you, send it direct to an Amazon fulfillment by Amazon warehouse, where um, I've got a professional seller account. I log in, I can see that my inventory is landed, it's now for sale. And then the customer shopping on Amazon pays Amazon. Amazon ships the product to the customer automatically. So totally hands off for me. I can live in New Zealand. I can be on the beach in Bali. I can be traveling. Amazon's holding my products and doing all the customer delivery, answering silly questions about I've lost my credit card, numbers expired, my address has changed. They deal with all of that boring stuff. And then Amazon collects the payment from the customer. Then every two weeks, Amazon pays me back in my New Zealand bank account, the balance that's been accruing from my sales. So the first thing I do every morning is check online to see how many products I've sold overnight while I was asleep, which is very fun, um, and just see my balance growing. And every two weeks, they'll make a, a distribution direct to my bank at home. But I never touch a product. I don't get samples. I choose products that... Customers oh, I like this business. It's pretty neat. So the it's cool. I, I had no idea this all. I, I had no idea how this worked. I mean, I've obviously seen resellers on Amazon. I had no idea the kind of underpinnings of how it all works. This is cool. There's a few different so, on Amazon. Oh, sorry, carry on. There are a few different ways just to do it as well. So I do a thing called private labeling. So I create my own brands and the suppliers produce for my specifications. And it's kind of a unique product on Amazon. There's a load of people do something called retail arbitrage. They resell other people's products or they buy from existing wholesalers with existing known products and just resell them. But I don't think the margins are nearly as good. Plus, it would be harder to sell because you're not actually creating a brand. That's just straight. I'm, glad, straight. I, I, I'm super glad you raised that because we talk about this this thing called the monopoly control where you've got a point of differentiation and that that's what gives you better margins and 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 it's what ultimately acquirers uh, care for is they, they want products with some point of differentiation. They're not sort of in a commodity space. So that was, did, did you make that decision to build your own brand? Like what was driving that decision? Was it the better margins or were you, did you have the foresight to think this is, this is going to help my, the valuation of this company downstream? Oh, I'd like to say I'm some sort of business servant and I had this, you know, clear strategy, but actually it was the course I did. That was the model they taught. There were other courses out there teaching how to wholesale, but I did a course on how to private label, which is creating your own brand. Um, and that worked really well. And I'm, I've enjoyed that creative piece. I've got no design background. I'm not inventing products, but I do like bringing the designers and the manufacturers together and throwing some ideas around about packaging or some point of differentiation. And seeing that come to life is actually really fun. So I've enjoyed that creative side from cool. watching people do What's the thing. Um, and then seeing your own product for sale is a very rewarding exercise and it can happen really fast. It was weeks, not months to start selling. I can imagine it being incredibly rewarding, especially when you're in New Zealand and you're seeing it being bought all over the world. What, uh, what's the name of the course, by the way, in case people want to take that? Is there, we can put it in the show notes. Okay. So um, there's a link that um, you can have a look at, which is aspiringentrepreneurs.com forward slash built to sell. So we've put a page together just for this podcast. So you can- Oh, cool. Uh, find any details about getting started there if you are interested in private labeling. So I do help people. So say it again, aspiringentrepreneurs.com slash built to sell. Correct. Awesome. Okay. 
Well, that's great. Thank you very much for doing that. So that that's a course that you've developed that can help people sort of stick handle all this uh, Amazon stuff? Yeah. So this it's kind of a two-part process. The first bit's the tough one, which is choosing what product to sell. That's the million-dollar question. If you get that right, you can grow a million-dollar business in a year or two and sell it, which we'll get on to. Um, there's a lot of operational day-to-day process stuff as well. A lot of people teach that. There's not really, um, you know, I don't teach that differently. There's only one way to do a shipping label for Amazon. So a lot of my trainings all around product selection and building brands and also building to sell. Um, So the main things I do differently, I go for more premium products that are lower competition. So I don't need to jostle with all the big sellers to get onto page one. Um, I source from countries outside of China a lot um, where everybody else is mainly in China. Um, so I've been getting products, like I had a tea business that was all from Sri Lanka and India. So I've had some amazing trips and experiences through this as well. Um, and then the other thing is, of course, building it to sell. So I teach all my students the things I've figured out from having sold a couple of these. What did the other sides, accountants and lawyers pick holes in when they did due diligence? And um, what did I learn from doing the handover and transition? Um, what systems would have made my life easier training at the new owner, that kind of thing. So it's all um, a bit more streamlined than the first few times around and um, just rinse and repeat. So all you need to do once you've got the model is feed the right kind of products in. Um, and that doesn't take a lot of time or money. You just need to know what to look for and um, source them online, run the whole business online and then um, keep growing. That's awesome. Okay. So let's get into the sales. So you have, I know you've sold a couple, I think, um, we you, the tea business. You also had this this baby product. Um, I think we're going to dig into the, the the sale of the the baby product. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So, I, how big did you get this company in terms of you know if you can share revenue or profitability, like a sense of just sort of how big it was when you uh, when you first decided maybe you wanted to sell it? Yeah. So I hit one point six million US in sales at about the fourteen month mark. Um, and that was just from the first sort of handful of products. I then spent a lot of that profit launching a lot more products. So I had this huge portfolio, hundreds of products, um, and then was sort of gathering data on what was working. But when I got to about 18 months, it just happened. I'd done about 2 million in sales. Um, I had to do my tax returns. So everything was all filed and neat and tidy. And I knew all my numbers. And I've got a friend in LA who's a business broker, Jock Pirtle, who was excellent. And I had a chat to him. I said, oh, what do you think um, this is worth? You know, here's the his numbers. And he said, oh, I'd get you a buyer for that for seven figures overnight, confidently. He's Australian boys, full of it. Um, so a big <laughs> list. He knows, knows what he's doing. And he was hungry to, you know, close a big deal because it was going to be a seven-figure exit. And he found me a buyer. So a guy in Utah turned up, had a good look around, had a couple of weeks of questions um, I just did all those questions on Skype as we're chatting now from New Zealand. He had somebody advising him who had hard questions. Uh, you know, all the obvious Amazon objections. Why don't these people sell it themselves? What about the fact Amazon owns the customer database and you don't? You know, it's pretty good answers to both of those. Um, what are they? Well, the, the reason um, Amazon doesn't share the customer database, they see the customers as theirs and they charge about a third of the sale price for all their fees, the warehousing, the delivery to the customer, their commission for the customer being on their platform. So I don't get to email a big database and tell them all about you know what I'm up to in my business, but most people unsubscribe from a lot of that stuff anyway. And 
Amazon's got fresh people on um, on the platform every single day searching to buy. So if I'm making sales and not having to pay for traffic and not having to look after an email list and there's actually nothing to do. So it means you can just focus on the products. And Amazon's very motivated to have lots of people buying on their platform because that's how they make money. Um, yeah, so it's actually not a problem. So people who are new to Amazon go, show me the database and show me your social media. And there's just none. It's not needed. It's just an expense. Every time I've done it, it's never been as good a return on investment as just putting new products up for sale on Amazon that meet the criteria. Got it. So, so you hired Jock, mm-hmm. but I'm curious to know why you did that. I mean, you could have just, I'm assuming, let this thing run for years into the future. Why, why were you interested in selling in the first place? Uh, so I was still working part-time. I'd been on maternity leave when I started the business. So I had a toddler and a baby at the stage. So I was pretty busy. Um, I had a good job. I was a diplomat working for the New Zealand government. So good job um, paying a nanny and all the childcare. My husband was working for New Zealand government too. So we had good jobs, but we had this horrible mortgage. And that lump sum cleared the mortgage and more um, and just meant we didn't need to work anymore. So kind of that business is so easy to run. It's maybe, I say, sort of four to eight hours a week once it's been set up right and sort of optimized. So it's quite attractive to sell. You don't need to be some Facebook whiz kid or some tech kid in Silicon Valley to run an Amazon business, you know, retirees who've got, you know, a day a week could do this. So I thought there'd be a strong market out there to sell to. And the business was in good shape. And I had lots of ideas for new products. And I knew if I had a big lump sum of cash, could clear the mortgage, we would go and have a three-month sabbatical on the beach in Bali, which we did. And then I'd start a new Amazon brand and grow and sell that. So took the money. Uh, did the deal, uh, paid off the mortgage, started some more Amazon products. Fantastic. So let's get into the deal itself. So you're 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 into asking, answering these questions from this Utah company. Mm-hmm. Um, did did you have? It sounds like you did engage a business broker. Did you get other um, interested parties to to come to the table, or was it just the the uh, the Utah based company that that sort of got serious quickly? They responded overnight and we gave them a letter of intent that gave them a window. I think it was two weeks initially. They needed a bit of an extension, but I think we said two weeks, I'll open up. So it was super easy to share. So I gave them admin, sorry, um, view access to the Amazon account. They couldn't edit anything, but they could see every number since the day this account opened. I gave them shared access to a Dropbox folder, which had things like supplier agreements um, all the design assets, all the invoices, all the bank statements, so they could see all that, all online. Gave them a few days, they asked a few questions, went around doing that for a while. Um, then, what was the next step? So then we drafted an agreement. So the letter of intent said, basically, if everything checks out, you intend to go ahead. Um, Jock, the broker, checked, you know, that they had the funds available and um, were serious. Um Took a few rounds of negotiations. There were a few products that I'd put on that Amazon account, but decided I'd want to hold back for myself. They were very new. They weren't increasing the valuation at all, but I thought they'd be a good project to keep for the next round. So excluded a few products that were in there. I was initially going to just sell um, rights to the US, but ended up including UK and Europe as well. Um, So that was a value to them. It didn't really cost me anything to add in. So we sort of negotiated around those sorts of things. And um, and then it was all signed a few weeks or so after that. So we had a lawyer who specializes in Amazon stuff. Um, it was actually an asset sale. So 
um, because that was a New Zealand company, I can't sell that to an American individual without him becoming a resident and a director of that company. It got a bit hard. So we sold the Amazon account as an asset. Um, so just like a little legal thing for the reason behind that. Um, and then he basically got the password and I got a million dollars, sort of sort of how it worked. Very James Bond. So the so the uh, the sell price was a million dollars. Yeah, yeah, just over seven figures. So we had um, the value of the company, and then there was some inventory on top of that at cost. And usually, you would sort of pay for that inventory as it sells through. And um, so we had a couple of installments over the next few months, and then we were all done. So I spent, I went to visit um, the guy in Utah, spent some time with him and his family, got them comfortable with it all, um, and that just meant if he ever had to ring and check something, you know, we'd met face to face, it made it easier. So I think going to meet a buyer when the deal's that big is worth doing. You did that prior to consummating the deal or yeah. after yeah. the check had cleared? Yeah, I was actually, because I had this tea business as well. I'd been to the World Tea Expo in Vegas, which is quite a spectacle. Um, so I'd I went that. Um, and then Utah was just a quick hop across to tie the two trips together. So I went to see him. It was good. So you, you saw him before the deal consummated? Yeah, yeah, before. Okay. So you're, you sold it for just over a million dollars. What was the, like, how profitable was the company? I'm assuming you had the $2 million in sales, mm -hmm. but what would, what would you have been netting on that before tax? It's around 30%. Um, so the way Amazon businesses typically work is about a third goes to Amazon in their fees. And that's all the storage, you know, you've got, you save so many overheads and expenses with Amazon doing all the things they do for you. So that's fine. And free traffic, which not many businesses get. And then yeah. a third is usually your cost of goods. Um, so you pay for those up front from your supplier. They ship them in, then they sell. So about a third is the cost of goods. And then about a third's profit. Got it. And the, the cost of goods, would that include shipping the product from Nepal to yeah. the distribution centers? Yeah. So okay. That's all the inbound shipping as well. And that third, that's the cost of goods. So. There's not too many so expenses. I got a virtual assistant to help out with some admin. She wasn't even full time. Um, what else did I have? You can pay, <clears throat> excuse me, pay to um, do some pay per click advertising on Amazon, which is usually a really good return because people are there to shop. So if they see your product and they just look for it, that's well worth being in front of their eyeballs. But there's not too many moving parts. It's very scalable. It's not much more work to run a business with a hundred or two or three hundred products and then. Half a dozen. Got it. Got it. So your gross margin, if you will, uh, you know, before you pay your virtual assistant and any advertising costs, was about six hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah, if I'm getting that right. Uh, pretty solid for my first business in my first year. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so Kiwi rubles down in New Zealand, and that goes a long way for a house or two down. <laughs> I'm sure it does. Um, fantastic. So. Uh, if people are thinking about this Amazon thing, if you think you can sell, like if you think it's going to cost you, you know, $30 to buy the product and ship it to the US, you should be thinking you could sell it on Amazon for around a hundred bucks to, to make all the economics work. Yeah, that's about right. Is that roughly, roughly what you're yeah. thinking? Okay. Got it. Um, what other sorts of questions did the Utah buyer pose. You mentioned the question about who owns the customer data and you know why would I buy a business when I don't own the customers. That was a, a zinger, which the uh, 
the uh, the lawyer from the other side asked you, but what other sorts of questions did they ask that were troubling or gave you pause? Um, they really wanted to have my virtual assistant, who is this amazing girl in Canada who ran the show. Um, so we agreed that she'd be kind of seconded over, I think it was initially three months, then it ended up being more like six part-time. Um, so she could continue running the day-to-day, so he didn't worry about having to do shipping labels or understand how we'd be managing inventory she could just keep doing all that with her eyes closed and he could just pay her um so that was good um and I'd made sure that her contract was transferable if the business sold the same with my suppliers that the supply agreements and the same terms would apply to a new owner um so there was a bit around who who in my team could continue helping they asked if I could do consulting and help them choose new products um, so I did that for a while. Um, he actually ended up not doing that many new products for some reason. It was just, you know, the existing ones were selling and he was busy. And there's most of the work on Amazon's at that front end. You do the work once to source a new product and then it stays in stock and sells for a very long time. Um, but that's where the work is. It's uh, pretty good passive income once you've set it up. Um, but Why did th- just to collect the passive income. Tell me about the company or the individual in Utah. What, what was he or she looking for in buying this business? Like, what, was there any sort of strategic reason they wanted to buy it, or like, why did they want to buy your? He wants company? to be online. He's still got a another day job, so he's um, got a family and um, a few properties and a few other bricks and mortar businesses. Uh, he's a bright guy, very um, astute, very commercial. Um, and wanted to buy an online business. So we'd been watching a few Amazon businesses come on the market and then liked the point of difference about the products with mine. Um, and also he could imagine himself using the product. So I see people choose you know, these products that they pick from a bit of software by the numbers and they never really get into it. And you know, they're just trying to run the business by the numbers. Whereas I've always chosen products that I like or that I use myself or you know, build brands that I'd be proud of. And I could tell that he and his wife just liked the company and the way things had been done. It wasn't just a hodgepodge of random junky products that sold for X margin. They actually liked the product. So I think that helped. And the way the branding and packaging and everything was done, it looked pretty classy. Did the supplier agreements that you have or had, excuse me, with the company or the individuals in Nepal, did did they contemplate or cover the change of ownership of your company? Yes, they did. Yep. So when I talked to the broker, he said, before we go on the market, let's tidy up a few things. This is what is going to be, you know, picked apart if it's not done. So I went to the suppliers and changed my VA, my virtual assistance agreement. And there were a couple of other things we did. Oh, we just tidied up all the documents. So everything was in Dropbox um, so we could share. But there was a little bit of just admin tidying stuff up and making contracts easier to transfer. So I told the suppliers in my main VA what we were doing, but didn't tell um, any of the subcontractors or anything. I had a few people doing bits of design. I didn't want to spook anyone who didn't have to know, but um, just got on with it pretty quietly and quickly. What was the reaction of your main supplier when you told them that you were considering selling? Um, they were fine. They'd seen that sales are steady. I said I was going to be involved. You know, Some of my payments relied on the business continuing to run smoothly, so I wasn't leaving anyone in the lurch. Um, and I also still work with that supplier. I get other products from them now. So I've got a non-compete on the stuff I sold, but there was other stuff that they helped me source now. So there's no shortage of products. That's the thing. Um, a lot of people struggle to choose the good products, but if you know what you're looking for, there's more out there than you can ever do yourself. So that's why I feel good about helping other people choose good products. It doesn't limit my ability to find good ones myself. 
I had a coaching call last night and I gave these clients of mine, a couple in Australia, I gave them three product ideas to sell on Amazon. And then saying to my husband over breakfast this morning, I think I just gave those people $3 million ideas. <laughs> All of them myself with my own money, but there's just more that I came across that I could do myself. Got it. So you're, you're feeling, you didn't feel like you were um, locking yourself out of the Amazon platform by giving the Utah buyer a non-compete. No, not at all. And then last year when I sold the tea business, that's, you know, a few years of selling no tea. But um, yeah, it's, it's, there's just more stuff to go and, and do that's new and interesting as well. So I just keep... Why did you sell the tea business? So what, what was... When or where, why? So I didn't hear the... No, why? Why? What, like what, why, why did you sell it? Um, similar reasons um, as the first one. So had a new property. Um, that we just built, sort of our dream home down in the South Island of New Zealand. So we paid off the first mortgage with the first um, exit. Um, and I'm seeing a theme here, Sophie. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I don't want to have an eight-figure Amazon business. They they would really um, – I don't know if I'd sleep well at night with one quite that big. So I think when they get to seven figures, there's going to be a bit of a reduction in who's available with cash to buy a business like that, you know, a mom-and-pop investor – it's like it's a straightforward transaction. It's a manageable size business. Once you start dealing with, you know, some big private equity firm and it's an eight-figure deal, or if Amazon does something random, um, you know, I'd feel a bit exposed with a really huge business. And I'm not really an operations person. Like there's some people who are great at systems and optimizing. I'm really good at the front end, coming up with the product ideas, building out the brand, growing it. And then I think my sweet spot is selling it when it's sort of high sixes figures maybe a million dollars, um, and then going back and starting again. I get all my energy creating stuff, um, and other people are looking to buy a steady cash flow passive income business. So those lumps of cash are great fun to chase down when you exit. That's got me quite hooked. Um, there's a roadmap to get there. You know, a pro- If you've got four Amazon products, the sale price is $30 each, and you sell 25 of each of those a day, that's a million-dollar revenue business. Um, they usually sell for a multiple of sort of two and a half to three times the annual net profit. So pretty good for, you know, being able to build six or seven figure business quite quickly. Um, and you don't need a lot of capital to get going either. You've got to buy that first product up front. You've got to juggle your cash flow pretty carefully to stay in stock as you're adding new products. Amazon pays out every two weeks though. So your cash flow's not too lumpy on the distribution side. It's just if you want to order a container load of something, you need to have some money around. Um, but starting out and growing from scratch, you can you know build one of these in two years and then sell it. It, it ticks so many of the boxes that we talk about at Built to Sell and Valley Builder. I, uh, I you know I think it's it's an awesome model. So I wish you all the best with your next uh, your next one. I, I'd be curious to know before I let you go. Is there one thing that you might do differently um, if you had it to, to do all over again? I mean, I guess this another way of asking the same question would be, what advice would you have for somebody going through the sale of their business for the first time? Um, what would you say to that? Uh, so I think getting a broker is excellent. I think that, you know they've got access to people that have already self-selected that they want to buy a business like this. Um, if there's ever any kind of jostling in the negotiations, they can do the tough stuff. You know, they can say, you know, it's time to make a decision, boys, or they can say, I need to see evidence of your funds in the bank. You know, they can do that harder stuff. 
whereas I can just be answering the questions and showing the new owners or potential owners what I do, what they would have to do, you know, why things have been done in certain ways. So it keeps it, it kind of makes the relationship for the negotiations good Um, and sort of take different roles as it goes through, you know, dealing with Morgan Stanley, sending you a barrage of tough questions. Um, So they've got some generic experience around, you know, common objections, which is good. Um, and also help negotiate things like the finance terms. Because um, I'm in New Zealand, it's a bit difficult. Like I haven't been running it through US, um, like I haven't got IRS tax returns, which if somebody wants an SBA loan, they'd probably want to see. Uh, so I was sort of looking for cash buyers and this broker had cash buyers, which was great. Um, what else? I think you want the profit to be sort of six figures Like you want to have been doing a hundred thousand net profit and then be selling it for a few hundred thousand is the minimum. Otherwise, I mean, it's quite a big effort to get the prospectus out there, put your energy into getting it already for sale, all the negotiations, all the transition stuff. You wouldn't want to do that more than once a year unless you were getting a, a good dollop of revenue out of it. Um, and I think the brokers just help, you know, keep the market competitive. You might find a single private buyer yourself, but you'd never know what the market's willing to pay unless it goes out to all the potential people and get them bidding up or, um, you know, really, you know, put the, the scarcity on and put the pressure on for them to make the decision to buy it. All makes great sense. There's so much more to know. Sophie, where can I know you're going to have a lot of people reaching out to you. Where, where do people find you? What's the? Do you have sort of a suggestion for people? You mentioned aspiringentrepreneurs.com slash built to sell. Is that the best place for them to go? Yeah. Yeah. So I've got a few things I do. One is help complete Amazon newbies work out what kind of products to sell. So I run a group called Product University. So there's a bunch of pre-recorded trainings on the basics, the A to Z, a to Z in the States, everything you need to know just to get up and selling fast. Then I also do live weekly coaching once a week as well. So every Friday morning, my time, your US Thursday afternoon or evening, I um, go live and I sometimes have something prepared that's like an update from my side, a new tactic or something I'm doing or something I've learned or something I've read, share with people what's going on what's happening at Amazon. Um, but then also people have a chance to ask me anything. So they kind of feel like they're up to date and connected in with the people that know what they're doing on Amazon rather than making it up as they go. And then I also do some a bit of coaching and I also take people on trade show visits. So I just got back from a trip to China with 30 Australians. I'm taking a bunch of people to India in October. Um, I'm taking a group to Vietnam to source products from a lifestyle expo in Vietnam. So there's some really cool lifestyle and fun stuff you can do through sourcing products around the world. Um, and I quite like the travel outside of the big Chinese trade shows. I like to get out and about and and uh, have some cool trips. So take people with me who want to see how I choose products and work with suppliers. So that's all on that link, aspiringentrepreneurs.com slash built to sell. Sophie Howard, thank you so much for joining us. Brilliant. Thanks for having me on the show, John. It's been great having a chat. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. 
Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.